Welcome to Improv Interviews. I have a wonderful guest today that I've known, I think, over a year now, but I'm just learning a lot about him. And I know you're going to find him really, really interesting. His name is Ron Jarvis, and we met through our mutual friend and mentor, Aretha Sills. Hi, Ron. Hi. How are you doing, Margo? Oh, I'm great. Looking at you and talking to you is wonderful. And I'm um, going to start right in. Let's start because I'm a therapist. I like to go back to your childhood and like to where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? And Do I need to lay down? Well, you could if you want to. Yeah, I've got a couch back over there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I can just sit up therapy. I, you know, I'm a big boy now. Yes, you <laughs> are. But you're a kid at heart. I know that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that. So where are you from? What was your family like? Wow. That is a big one. Uh, I was born in Ohio. And it's uh, right where the three states of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio meet. So it's Appalachia, I guess. Or Appalachia. Uh, I don't know. See, I left there when I was young. So I always get, I get beat up for Appalachia, Appalachia. Appalachia. But anyway, it was a, it's a beautiful area. My family were potters. They made pottery. So when I, grew, when I was very little, I was always in the pottery, running around, playing in the discarded clay. And so I was, you know, just always covered with, you know, uh, pottery dust. So I was like this little, you know, blonde kid with white powder all over me. But my father was a jiggerman. He made plates, these big platters, and my mother uh, was called a batter, a batsman, and she ran uh, between different workers taking their uh, ware to the kiln. So it would be batter in, batter out. So she'd be in, she'd grab it, and she'd go. So it was really kind of fascinating. But unfortunately, uh, the only pottery in that area left is the one that makes Fiesta ware. uh, It's still there, um, Homer Laughlin. But all the little potteries that used to support Homer Laughlin, and Homer Laughlin is in a very small part of what it used to be. So we had to move. We had to go find another place uh, for my dad to work as a potter. And he went to a place in Warren, Pennsylvania, and we followed him up there. So now I went from living next to the river down in, you know, Ohio, up into the mountains of Pennsylvania. And that was pretty fascinating because we had a river next to us there, but it was kind of a different kind of river. It wasn't, you know, so much traffic on it. And we would like go across the Pennsylvania Railroad and down a path and then go fishing. And we would catch, you know, carp and other fish and snapping turtles. And so it was very bucolic. It was a wonderful, you know, childhood as far as that goes. Um, and I really kind of took to the mountains there. It was, you know, we had blizzards at night. You know, it was like, it was very close to uh, Buffalo, Warren, Pennsylvania. So mm-hmm. it's on that mm-hmm. same level. So we get plenty of snow. So it was great. But then again, that pottery went under. Uh, around that time, my mother started working as a mental health worker. And she worked at a, mel- at a mental hospital there. So it was time to uproot and go again. Uh, and basically what was happening was pottery was now being made by machines. So it was like the industrial thing going on. And so hand, hand-thrown pottery and that heavy plot, you could buy 10 plates for the price of what my father made. So we came to California. That was when I was in the second grade, which would make me about eight. And that was quite a culture shock. Uh, I and, bet. Yeah, I, and I really, I really identified with Opie 
from Andy Griffith's show, you know, it's like I had this really thick accent and I had uh, my hair shaved up here and uh, short sleeve shirts were always rolled up and, you know, I just, you know, I looked like a hick. And all these kids I was going to school with in California, they, they looked like they came out of GQ. They, you know, they, it was like, wow, I, I'd never seen, you know, some of the stuff that they were. So then gradually, you know, I kind of assimilated. But I think, you know, around that time uh, is when I first started getting in trouble in school because I talked a lot, you know, and usually whenever the teacher was throwing out any information, I would use it to make people laugh. And so I kind of started very early with that. And, you know, I, I ended up spending a lot of time out in the hall. So I read a lot of my, I had a lot of free reading I, and I was an avid reader. So growing up, that was good. You know, my life was a little bit in turmoil that way. And uh, yeah, I think when I got to California is when I just, I pretty much started acting up and I, and I haven't stopped since. So <laughs> I may have identified earlier as, you know, uh, maybe having a learning disability, mm -hmm. but they didn't do that then. You just dealt with it. So, you know, uh, well, I went through all kinds of different teachers. You know, some loved me, some hated me, some wanted me in the class, some had already heard about me before I got into class. And then I did graduate from high school as the class clown. So I was officially called the class clown <laughs> way before, and I, way before I ever, you know, joined the circus. So uh, that's kind of the, you know, that was my younger years. Um, in the middle, uh, when I graduated from high school, I was really ready to go to Vietnam. I, hadn't, I didn't have any uh, college ambitions or, or, right, or the money right. to go to college. Nobody in my family had ever gone to college. And so uh, I did go to a junior college for two years and I didn't know what to study. So since I liked to read, I studied philosophy and I had about eight or nine friends that we all graduated together and we just kept taking these philosophy classes and they were intensives. So they were like three hours a day, three days a week, you get nine units for them and they would do deep dives into everything from existentialism to the Greek experience, um, contemporary philosophy and they had two professors and they argued over what was contemporary. One said anything after the turn of the century and the other one said no it has to be after 1955 and so they would fight over who's a contemporary philosopher but it was fun you know it just i you know mm -hmm. that kind of stuff it was always pushing my brain and i really enjoyed yeah. that yeah and then um this is a strange story i i got thrown out of a i got i got an argument with one of the teachers who was a very right-wing uh guy very patriotic uh, guy and he was we were arguing about Vietnam and it was interesting because a lot of the people I was going to school with had come back from Vietnam it was 1969 and 70 and they were in class with us and I was getting all my information from them you know they were telling me what it was like in Vietnam and consequently they were all Vietnam vets against the war so you know I mean that's where I was so when this guy kept you know, going on and on and, you know, calling people unpatriotic that, you know, were, were against the war. I got mad and walked out of his class and then I just quit it, you know. And then I realized that I was no longer a full-time student and it made me uh, 1A. I was now draft eligible. 
And for 40 years, I blamed that guy for, you know, making me draft, you know, draft eligible and stuff. But the odd thing was that that particular year, it was 1971, the draft expired and Congress wouldn't vote it back in, not for about three or four months. And so they had to debate it and go back and forth. So what happened was when they did reinstate the draft, which was at the end of the summer of that uh, 1971, there wasn't enough room to draft that many people. So it was a really low number that year. So I missed the draft by six numbers. That kind of threw me into a, you know. Wow, that's spectacular. Six numbers? Yeah, I missed it by about six. Wow. I was 140 something, and I think uh -huh. I went to 137 or 138. Jeez. But uh, it took me 40 years to realize that he did me a favor. If I had finished that year, I would have been eligible the next year. And they went over 100 numbers past my number the next year. They had to draft more people the next year. So uh, I would have definitely been in the Army. And I was, I'm, not, I'm not a good candidate for the Army. I'm, if somebody wants me to do something, I'll do it. You know? And the last thing you want to do is volunteer in the Army. But I'm, I'm like a guy, I try to fix everything. So it's like, okay. You know, so I would have been that guy that they would have sent to do all kinds of stuff. And it doesn't mean that I would have ended up in Vietnam, but that, you know, it was, I grew up in San Bernardino, California, where Norton Air Force Base was flying people out of there every day to mm -hmm. Vietnam. And I would watch the star lifters take off, these giant planes. And I would see convoys of soldiers going to the air base. And so it was pretty frightening when you're, when you're 19 and you don't want to go into the Army. And they're telling you, you have to go. And so it was, it was a rough time. Uh, and actually, I, that's when I started experimenting with psychedelic drugs and doing all the California stuff in 1969, 70, 71, and last week. But no, not last week. I was just kidding. I, I got to ask you, were you at Altmont or um, uh, you, were in, you were in Southern California? Where, what part of California were you in? Yeah, San Bernardino is uh, south of Los Angeles in the desert. Uh, it was the home of the original McDonald's. Right, and, right, yeah. <laughs> and, and the Hells Angels. You know, those yeah. are two nice combos. It had a big air base, it had a big steel plant, and it had orange groves surrounding the city. And when I was young, that city was a beautiful city. But a couple of years ago, oddly enough, I was in Athens. We were on vacation. and. I heard sirens and I looked, turned on the BBC and I found out that Germany was delivering money to Greece that day and I was real close to the parliament. So they were bringing a representative from Germany to give uh, Greece money to help them survive. And in the next story on the BBC was a second, a second city in the United States has claimed bankruptcy. And it was San Bernardino. <laughs> and it's just one of those weird time wow. things where I'm in Greece when they're getting bailed out, watching the BBC talk about the city I grew up in that was now bankrupt. So, wow. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Crazy. Well, when yeah. I think of, I, especially when I think of the summer of 69, I think of San Francisco, because a lot of my friends went out that summer and the Fillmore was there and Love Ends and all that stuff. Yeah, it was really funny because, you know, from Southern California, you'd think we'd always want to be running to San Francisco, but we did, but we would keep going and we would go into the Redwoods and we would just right outside of San Francisco, these beautiful Redwood forests. And we went to one called the Rockefeller Forest and we would go there and camp 
And we would just stay for like two or three days, sleeping under giant trees and enjoying mm -hmm. it. And, and so that was more what we were looking for. But if we really wanted to do anything, we could go to the Sunset Strip. You know, it was only an hour from my house. So I could go to Hollywood. And as a matter of fact, when I was 16, because I had a driver's license, a friend goes, Ron, you need to take us to the Sunset Strip on a, on a Friday night, Saturday night one night. I went, oh, okay. And I had a little Fiat, and we drove all the way into Hollywood, and we went to the Sunset Strip. And it was amazing, because I just saw these people, all the beautiful people, you know, the guys with their, and I was a jock, you know. But these guys had long hair, and all the women had, had uh, granny dresses on, and they, they all looked like they were just floating up and down the boulevard. And then I went to the uh, Whiskey A Go-Go, uh -huh. and I didn't have money to get inside, so I just stood on the outside, and I got to hear the Doors doing a concert inside the Whiskey A Go-Go, and it was just like, oh, wow, that's, they're playing Light My Fire. Oh, my God, that's the Doors, you know, and so. And, I, and like I said, I was, I was a real, uh, what do you want to call it, hick, you know, I, I was just, I was a football playing wrestling guy that ran track and, you know, did all that stuff in the middle of this beautiful city of, you know, people just stoned out of their minds. But it was interesting, you know, for a 16-year-old. You know. I bet it was. Incredible. Oh, so yeah, there, was, there, was, there, was some, there was some really wonderful things going on, uh, at least for half the country. The other half of the country didn't think so. But right. uh, California was like, I guess, where it was at at the time. But my, my biggest thrills, just like you, I, I have to get to the ocean, and the ocean is, is Mother Nature. That's when I go out and float on the water, I'm a happy chappy. You know, it just really does wonders for my mental health. I just love the ocean. So that was really what I did. So Very this comes to the next part. So what happens is I, I find out I'm not getting drafted. I was kind of feckless. I didn't know what to do. Um, so what I did was I found a friend that wanted to get out of town. And I go, okay, that's great. Let's get out of town. How are we going to do that? And he goes, well, you know, I've always wanted to work on a boat. And I went, well, that sounds good. So we went to San Pedro. We looked into it. We got ourselves some visas or some uh, passports. And, you know, it's, it's one of these things. You, you, life is like a gift. It, it hands you things and you either take it or you don't. And at this time and like i said that was a gift when i got in a fight with that guy and dropped out of his class because it put me in the right year for my number so then what happened was we get down there and there's the whole bay is full of ships because there's a strike going on and they said well nothing's moving right now but when this strike breaks everybody's going to need sailors and he goes you'll never be able to work on an american boat because they're union and it's a father-son union and you'll just never get on an American boat. But he said, you know, the best, the best sailors out there are Norwegians and Swedes. Go check in with the Scandinavian shipping you know, agency. And I did. And so Thanksgiving, I get a phone call and they said, Ron, you've got a boat and you're leaving on Monday. And or you, need to, you, need, you know, need to be aboard the boat on Monday. And I went, Wow. Okay. So I gathered everything I could. And Monday, I ended up going down to the, my dad drove me down. He was so happy that I got a job because he thought that I was going to starve to death as a philosopher. So he goes, you've got a job. You're working on a boat. Yay. You know, and he was so happy. So he takes me down and puts me in this little packet, which is a small boat that takes you out to the ship. 
And I wave goodbye and, you know, I go out to the ship. And for the next nine months, I was a seaman on a Norwegian freighter. And we went to New Zealand, we went to Fiji, we went to Australia. And which was even better because when we go there, it's summertime again. So I had just finished summer. <laughs> then I get on wow. a boat and I go down and, and sail all around the South Pacific. And then we came back and sailed to San Francisco and up into Oregon and Portland and that area and came back again. Then I signed off. But I got that trip under my belt and I have a million stories. I worked in the engine room. I was, I was an oiler, which is another term for it is greaser. And another term for greaser is pig because you're just always covered in oil. So, it, and then actually my official title is Norwegian seaman smur, which is basically oiler, you know. And it was just fun, <laughs> I learned all about engines. I learned how to take things apart. And they actually took the engine apart while we were at sea, which is illegal. They took the main engine and took a piston out of it. And I was the same size as the piston. And they put me down in the cylinder and I had to clean the cylinder and I looked for cracks or any kind of wear and didn't see anything. So they, they figured the engine's doing good. They put the piston back in and we started sailing away again. Just amazing stuff. We're in a typhoon, you know, where the ship was rocking for like four or five days. And we would sneak out on deck and get into a BMW that was chained to the deck and play the radio and put on the wipers. <laughs> we were too, I, was, I was 20 years old. I was too stupid to know how dangerous it was. You know, it was just that, there's that many crazy stories about that. So then I finished, you know, my eight months there. It's now the start of summer again for California. And I had a good friend from high school that was also a cut up. And we used to do, we used to put on skits for the assemblies and stuff. And he goes, Ron, let's, let's go down and live at the beach this summer. And I had some money and he had some money. And then I found a job working at a hardware store. So. I went, we moved to Newport Beach for like a summer and took classes at Orange Coast College and we were going to take acting classes thinking, well, this will be fun because that's where you meet girls, you know, you're going to meet girls, you know, take these acting classes. So we did, we took an acting class, but the first day of class turned out to be an audition. They didn't have acting classes in the summer. They put on a musical. So I ended up in Camelot. And, I, you know, I couldn't sing, never acted in my life, but I look good in tights. So my partner and I figured that, that, that's how we got in the show is we look good in tights. So we're not going to, you know, knock that. So uh, we did that show. And while we were doing the show, there was a, a girl that we knew that ran a, a tarot card shop. Remember those, you know? Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, tarot yeah. Card, you know, all that stuff. And she was like a psychic and, you know. And from what I remember, the way I remember it was she convinced us to go to a clown audition, but it was like 60 miles away or an hour away. And I didn't have a car. We were, I had a little motorcycle. And she says, I'll give you my car. And I went, you have a nice Volkswagen. Are you going to give me your Volkswagen to go do this audition? She goes, yeah, yeah. I said, wow, you really do think we should go. So the two of us went to this audition and uh, we did really well. And we watched, we were, uh, we were uh, enamored by their uh, physical comedy, you know, that they were doing. And it was knock, it, we ended up knockabout clowns. And by knockabout, it's like one clown hits another one and knocks him down and he gets back up and hits him and he goes down again. And there's 
I can go into, there's a, a bunch of different kinds of clowns, but knockabout clowns is pretty much what I ended up doing. And we were watching some of the routines and then we went back and redid them our way and came back and, and we said, can we do the boxing gag that they were doing? And uh, the guy said, yeah, I'd love to see it. And we did it and he just, his name was Bill Ballantyne. He was a writer uh, who had actually joined the circus for a couple of years back in the 50s. And he, he joined it because he fell in love with it. And he would write stories about the circus uh, while he, he was a clown. So he had started the Ringling Clown College. And so he goes, yeah, we, we want you to keep uh, October and November open. Uh, he said, uh, we'd like you to go to clown college. And I went, okay, that's great, you know. So that's kind of how that happened. And there's no tuition or anything for clown college. You just needed wow. a couple hundred bucks for room and board. We stayed in Venice, Florida, right down the road from you. Yes. At a place called 40, well, there was, uh, there was the 40 Winks, was one little motel, and I forget the other one, but the other one was where all the clowns stayed, and it was just fantastic. It was, it was a great experience. And, and in those days, Florida wasn't so overdeveloped. I bet it was just beautiful. Venice is still a very oh. beautiful beach, but yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it, it was, no, boy, there was, even California was not as developed the way it is now. But Florida, yeah, was very pristine. And uh, we, you know, there was an old airplane uh, hangar that they had converted into the Ringling Brothers uh, winter quarters. So that's where we went to Clown College, is at the winter quarters. Because every year the show has to come in and rehearse for the new show. Right. But you know, you have to understand, Ringling Brothers, you would, if you got on a new show, you'd rehearse the show for six weeks, and then you'd tour with only two weeks off. So you actually work for 50 weeks a year, you get two weeks off, and then you'd go back and brush up your rehearsal, put new people in the show to replace the old people that left, and then we'd go out for another 50 weeks, uh, you know, or we'd work for another 50 weeks. So you only got two weeks off the entire time. And we did over 500 shows a year. You did two a day, three on Saturday. And then the rest of the time you're driving to the next town or you're riding the train to the next town. So that was, uh, that was pretty phenomenal. And the Clown College itself was uh, a lot of circus people that would come in and teach your classes. So you had mime class, you had Arabian tumbling class, you had a makeup class, you had wardrobe, you'd learn how to make your own wardrobe, prop building, unicycle riding, ogling, wow. you know, and it just goes on and on. And at the end of the day, when you're completely wiped out, Bill would make us do yoga, and we would do a yoga class, go home and eat, and then we would come back to watch silent films. And the reason we watched silent comedies was because if you're going to be clowning for Ringling Brothers, you're going to be working in Madison Square Garden, for instance, where there's 18,000 people. And those people are way up, you know. So you have to learn to make your movements broad. You have to remember to keep your head back. Otherwise, they're looking at the top of your head or your hat or whatever. And so it's a, it's a very different way of performing. And really, those movements had to be big, had to be strong. And even my partner and I, we looked alike. We were both blondes, same height. You know, he was a little bit slighter build than me. But what happened was when I tried to put a makeup on and he had his makeup on, we looked alike. 
and you couldn't tell us apart. So then I started wearing an all white makeup. So I started becoming, I became a white face. And in those days, white face clowns didn't fall down. You know, they, they are the ones that they're the aristocrats. They're in charge. They're, they're <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't do anything but point and, you know, holler and things like that. But, but uh, I started falling and, you know, right around that time, other white face clowns were doing the same thing too. So we kind of broke a mold there, but really it was just because my partner and I, you couldn't tell us apart, even though, you know, we had different clown makeups on from a distance, we looked too much alike. So that also, you know, informed who we were as characters, which made him the dumb character, <laughs> the one, the stooge, the guy that's always yeah, yeah. being messed up. And that made me about that much smarter, you know, because I was a mess too. I was always getting, you know, in trouble too. So it was, it was a little bit like, Laurel and Hardy, except that, you know, my partner really did have some wonderful moves that were very similar to Stan Laurel, oh. but, but my hero is Buster Keaton. So right, right, right. I rarely changed the expression on my face, you know, I mean, I, I did, but it was pretty much always the same, and I would get yelled at for not smiling more, but unfortunately, I just don't have lips when I smile. It looks like a scar. <laughs> it's like there's a scar on my face or something. So I, I don't have one of those big turned up happy smiles. So we, you know, we worked around that. But uh, you know, you you don't pick your character. You know, you your character evolves. Most like when you're doing improv. You know, it looks like when you're in a scene and all of a sudden your character kind of appears. You know, and through a lot of work, you know, uh, that's kind of what happened. Our characters evolved into who we were. And we had a great time. We had so much fun with those characters. So I, I have a couple of questions. Um, oh, so I remember when it was Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey. Mm -hmm. So was that who you were with or was it just Ringling Brothers? Oh no, it was Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey. Barnum and Bailey. Um, they combined, what happened was they had two circuses at one time that were traveling, the Ringling Brothers Circus and the Barnum and Bailey Circus. Okay. And they were, and they were, uh, traveling and they would day and date each other. They would show up in the same towns around the same time. And, you know, it was just too confusing. And what happened was they said, well, why don't we just make it combined? And so it became Ringling Brothers. They, they put the two shows together. It became the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey combined shows. And that's kind of, that happened early in the 20th century, I believe. And, uh, you know, it just grew from there. And at that time they had Oh my gosh, it was, it was an incredible traveling show. It had a side show with all the different abnormalities and, you know, uh, wonders of the world, you know, and, you know, you'd go to do it and you'd have to pay a nickel to get in to see this one and a nickel to see that one. And that's where all the guys are out there hawking their show. Come on down, come on down. Right, right, right. Very right. good lady, ladies and gentlemen. You know, so that that was called, there was a midway where you had games to play, and then there was the circus tent itself. So those were all different entities, but they all traveled together, and they had a giant train. I was just going to ask you about the train, and they had cars for the animals too? Animals were on the train? Sure. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that I started driving, I drove... Uh, there was a guy named Gunther Gebel Williams who was our lion team, or our animal trainer that uh -huh. did all the exotic cats 
in elephants and all that. And uh, his assistant needed somebody to drive his car. And he, his assistant was his cousin, Henry. And Henry and I became very close friends. And Henry became my mentor when I joined the circus. He kind of wised me up. And he was a German fellow. He came from Cologne, Germany. And he, he kind of looked after me and made sure I didn't get in trouble and helped, helped me you know, assimilate into the circus because we ended up really good friends. We had another friend that was a con artist out of Boston who had got, he was our other friend. So my, my partner drove his car. So on the, on, whenever the show finished on a Sunday night, we would start driving to the next town because one of the big reasons we joined the circus was we wanted to see the United States. When you're living on the train, and I don't, you know, it's wonderful, but you're going through all the backyards of America and going to the worst parts of town because that's where they park the train. And so you're living in a train yard. And I just needed to get some fresh air and get away from the circus for one, yeah, day, yeah. one day a week. That kept me going. And I love driving. And I, I, we would drive all night. And we would usually beat the train by sometimes a day. So the two guys that we drove their cars for them, they would chip in and give us a hotel room. So we got a free hotel room. I had a car to go pick up all the food that I needed for the week and put into my refrigerator, get my laundry done. You know, those were all things that I could do. Whereas if you're living on the train, you had to scramble to do all that as soon as the train got into town. And it just was too much work. And then plus everybody, I'm, you know, you have no idea what it's like to live in a train car with 18 clowns. <laughs> Listen, they, they just I, don't stop. You know? So did, did you ever do that car thing where they come out of a car? Yeah, I, I drove it. Yeah, what I drove it? it for a while. What's it called? What's that car trick called? Clown car. Clown car. Now, I think I told you in the past that I went for several years in starting around 1954, 55, 57 to Madison Square Garden. And I remember there were parts like, I guess, the abnormalities or whatever that my parents wouldn't let me go see, you know, but um, I just remember and, and what a great experience for a child to go see a circus and just all the excitement and the trapeze artists, the clowns, the different acts, the wild cats. I mean, it was such, I mean, it's etched in my brain because it was such a powerful sensory experience. Well, yeah, no, when you have, <clears throat> when you have three rings of performers, your head is just on a swivel all the time. And sometimes they would put acts in between. So you might have five juggling displays at the same time, people juggling. Um, girls hanging up in the air, 30 feet, 40 feet in the air and getting spun around in circles. I used to hold the rope at the bottom and spin the girl around. And then when she climbed, I would pull it, you know, and pull it. Every time she unwrapped her leg, I would wrap it and then make it tight. And that's how she would inch up the ropes. So that was called a web setter. I, I was a web setter and she was doing a web routine. And, uh, you know, it's, they, the clowns always doubled in brass. We did a bunch of things, you know, we, we had to go out and dance. We were for all the production numbers. So it was really funny because for instance, they, my last year on the show, I was dressed as a cowboy who was in the gold fields and the music that they used for the elephant number was paint your wagon. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, you know, we were dressed like gold diggers out, and the girls were dressed like gold diggers. They were dressed like, bar barroom you know dancers and stuff right. so 
It's a beautiful number. I mean, it was a, it was a beautiful show. This show was the bicentennial show that was done, uh, and they poured a million and a half dollars just into the props and costumes. Now, when you were in costume, and that was the spectacle. Go ahead. Uh, Andrew, you now were you a clown or a regular person when you did that number? Well, that's the funny thing is we were all clowns, but we were told don't be funny. You know, just go out and do your dance routine. And don't be funny because you'll take away from Gunther and the elephants. Well, you know, that didn't work. Everybody was found a way to be funny. Uh, one day, have, I actually, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, one day I actually got knocked out by an elephant. They put the tub in the wrong place. So I was doing my little dance and, you know, my got a dream dance and the elephant's going around on a tub and spinning. Well, the elephant's tail hit me right here. And it just hit me between the eyes and I just went, I went out and little Tweety birds were flying around and, you know, some guy who had been picking up after the elephants came running over with a elephant shovel full of poo and that ammonia, you know, brought me back and I go, oh, and he's going, are you okay, Ron, you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. That You can take that away now. So the next day I looked like a raccoon. I had a couple of black eyes, but uh, it was like getting hit with a bullwhip, you know across the nose. Wow. So uh, talk about animals. Were there any animals you became especially close with, like had some paper? Yeah, I rode an elephant for two years. <gasps> oddly enough, her name was Ronnie, but they spelled it R-H-O-N-I, Ronnie. Uh-huh. But, but Ronnie and I uh, were a team for two years. Um, we had a ritual. The way you get up on an elephant was you would grab their harness and put your foot on their leg. And then on a command, the elephant would lift their leg and it would propel you. You know, you just, you'd shoot up in the air and land on the elephant's neck. And, you know, that's how you mounted your elephant. So what I used to do, because I'm a clown, when they launched me up, I would turn in the air so that when I landed, I was facing the elephant's butt. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I would, this is called a compliment. Whenever you see people putting their hands up like this, they're complimenting, you know, it's the compliment at the end of the, you know, you'll always see them go, Ta -da! you know, you don't bow in an arena, you throw your hands up and you acknowledge everybody in the audience, you know, so you throw your hands up. So I would land on that elephant and throw my hands up and, you know, be quite pleased with myself and then look down and go, where's the head? You know, I couldn't find it. <laughs> and I'd be looking around and I go, oh, there it is. So I would spin around. And then they always had a big plate on their forehead that said Ringling Brothers. So I would hang over the, the forehead and I would knock on her forehead. And then Ronnie would slowly bring her trunk up and I would grab her trunk and we would play tug of war. And then I would start singing karaoke into it, you know, and I'd start singing like it was a microphone. And, and that was our little warm up act. We did it every day. And years later, when I came back to the show, she remembered me. Oh, know, yeah. And yeah. They get like this, you know, they start rocking and I go, e -e -e -e, you know, when they're excited. And it was like, oh, I got her excited. She remembers me. Um, so I did love, I, I loved my elephant. She was so sweet. And just, they were so funny because every week they would get their nails done. Because what happens with the... Uh, what happens with circus elephants is, you know, they were not just circus elephants. Elephants in general, the, their nails will keep growing and they can get uh, cracked and split. 
And there's, a, there's actually a wonderful book called Circus Doctor that was written by the vet who was on the show when I was there. And he explained why they did all this cleaning and everything. And so they would go in on Saturdays and they'd put their paws up, or their feet up on a big tub. And these guys have files about this big. And they'd be filing the nails. And the girls would just stand there and get their nails done. And then, you know, they would oil around their eyes because if it would dry out there, they would yeah, just put yeah. oil in there and oil under the armpits. And everything. <laughs> they like a spa it. day. <laughs> yeah. And then they always got hosed down. They love playing in water, you know. So as a matter of fact, Miami, we used to do a thing called an animal walk where you walk the animals from the train to the building. And it was a great parade. And we had to stop doing it when Peter would come out and try and scare them and then get pictures of elephants getting mishandled and things. But it was like they would throw firecrackers and all kinds of stuff. So they had to start doing it at night. They couldn't bring the animals in during the day because there was just too many crazy people out there. But back in my day, that didn't happen. So this would be a big PR thing. And everybody would come out to watch the elephants go from the train to the building and the horses and the cages with the tigers and the llamas and you know the kids would be out there it was just it was fabulous but miami those guys really knew because we had the longest walk the train yard was so far from the building it was the longest animal walk we had and they would fill the gutters with water and the elephants would go over and suck up that water and spray their backs well if you're a brand new clown on the show, you're considered a first of May, which is when, you know, I'm not sure where the term came from, whether that's when the shows used to go out in the old days or not, but a new clown on the show was a first of May. So we would convince these clowns that this is the most important animal, you know, uh, walk that you can do. Wear your best stuff. There's going to be a lot of newspapers there. And of course, they didn't know anything. This was like our third stop. In, Jan in January, we'd go down to Miami. <clears throat> so, of course, the clowns, when they got to the end of the walk, were brown from head to toe because these elephants kept squirting their, squirting the clowns. You know, so that was our, that was a little rite of passage for the right. new clowns. You know, so that was interesting. But you know, I, we, there was a lot of camaraderie. And the most interesting thing about the circus was there's 400 people touring. And they're from all over the globe. They're from Hungary, they're from Romania, they're from Colombia, South America, they're from the United States, from Canada, from France. We had Philippe Petit on the show, the guy that walked the World Trade Center. Philippe, yeah, 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 yeah. He was on the show with us. You know, he did a year with us. And, and really good magician. He's a very good close-up magic guy. Very funny guy. Nice guy. So anyway, um, yeah, we would, we would pull pranks on the new clowns and, you know, break them in that way. But there was a lot of camaraderie. And even if people had different religions, different, uh, well, even we had a bunch of people that were at that time communists, you know, the Hungarians, Romanians, all those guys. And that was a big deal, you know, uh, because there was still uh, Cold War going on. But everybody got along. And that was, the, that, was the, that was the mantra that they used to use in the circus is get along or get along. In other words, please go. And it was just, it was fabulous because I knew that those guys, even if, you know, even if they didn't believe the same as I did, or maybe I'm really young and they, and I'm from outside because I'm kind of coming into the circus. Um, 
they, they accepted us, you know, and I accepted them. And if anybody got in any trouble, we would be there to help them. Even if it's somebody that you didn't particularly like, if you see them broken down on the road, you pulled over, you made sure they made it to the next town, you know, we all, we all took care of each other, which was a beautiful way to live. And it, it was, and it was nobody forcing that. It's just that it was, you knew that that's the way you had to get along. And that is so beautiful. And we don't see that much camaraderie in different places like that. And I think, you know, there's always this thing for kids. I'm going to grow up and run away to the circus. You know, there's this fantasy of being part of a circus. And you were the people that were actually doing it. So yeah, you're kind of living the dream. And the funny thing is, it was never my dream. I never really cared. Right, right, right. <laughs> I wanted, you know, really what I wanted to do, and it kind of showed when I got on the freighter, I wanted to travel. I always thought that travel makes you smarter. And, and, I, and, and I really believe that. I think the more you travel, the more you get out of your comfort zone, and the more you meet more people, it makes you a smarter person. Mm -hmm. Not so much book smart, but it's just as a world, you know, as living in the world, smarter. And so when I was 16, I went with a friend of mine to Oklahoma to work the harvest. And he was a Native American. So I hung out with a bunch of Native Americans for three months to work harvest. And when I was 18, th three guys came up to me and said, hey, one of the guys dropped out of our trip. Do you want to go? And I go, what is it? He goes, well, we're going to drive around the United States after we graduate from high school. So when I graduated in 69, we went 10,000 miles in a Rambler. And went all the way, <laughs> all the way to New Orleans, all the way to Washington D.C. for the Fourth of July. We went to New York. We stayed with relatives when we could find them. So we went to Ohio, back where I was born, and stayed with my uncle. We went to Indiana and stayed on a farm, where they had a family reunion. And the youngest person there, other than us, was 65. <laughs> and it was this farm, and it was great. And then we went all the way up to Quebec, Canada. And then we came back down through Montreal and we had passes for like all the national monuments, all the national parks. So we would just throw our sleeping bags down and sleep in national, national parks when we could. And I think we were in Lincoln, Nebraska and we were staying with a friend's cousins and we were all at a drive-in. And that night we saw everybody get up and just start walking while the movie's going on over by the concession stand. And we didn't know why, so we went, well, let's check it out. And we went, and the, uh, the man, men had just landed on the moon. We watched the moon landing in a drive-in in 1969. We missed Woodstock, because the radio was broken, the Rambler. We missed Woodstock by a month, you know, because we were there. I missed before. you. I did miss you, Ron. I noticed you weren't there, so. Yeah, I did. oh, you made it, huh? I did oh, miss you, yeah. That was used bathing in the in the pool. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have, I have one. Amazing. I have one picture of me. It's a very faded looking picture, but it was on one of the movies about uh, Woodstock. It followed a picture of oh, Joni Mitchell, I think, or not Joni Mitchell. She wasn't there, but it followed a lady with bird feathers or something. And I'm in my flannel shirt, my jeans. By then, I'm soaked because it had been raining so much. But yeah. Oh my. So, so what made you decide to leave the circus and how long had you been there when you said, I'm, I'm going to do something well, different now? Well, we, well, there was one thing I wanted to tell you about clowning oh, okay. that you might find interesting, uh, or two things. And one is when we were doing clown college, we, we did a little bit of spolin. We did some uh, dubbing, but they did it differently. They would have a clown doing something like brushing his teeth or whatever. 
And this was before we were in makeup. This is why we were studying. And we would have to mimic what he was doing, but make the movements bigger. So like if he's brushing his teeth, we were brushing our teeth like, you know, and, and, and so we did a lot of mirroring. And, and you and I know mirroring is like the, that's the entrance to follow the follower. You know, that's, that's how it all begins. So what I never really understood or even thought about because it was just so natural, when we were clowning, um, we were following the follower all the time. And it was because there's no fourth wall when when you're clowning you're looking out at the audience and you can actually walk out into the audience and join them and actually bring people into your routine and a lot of times mirroring's involved in that so the very beginning of the show was called come in and we would go out and work before the show even started we would entertain the people that got there early the clowns would go out and do little gags and this is where my partner and i would work on new gags because we would test them out there but a lot of the time it was just you and the audience and what we would do is we would pick people in the audience and we would sometimes mimic them, you know. And I had one guy that was so good at, if there was a guy walking with his girlfriend and he had her hand and she was behind him, he would sneak up and take her hand out of his hand and put his hand in there. And the guy wouldn't even notice wow. that she had let wow. go. And then the hand, and so he'd be walking along holding the hand of this clown and people would just be dying. And he didn't even know he was the what they were laughing at. But we would go up to people and, and work with them in that come in area. And it was really kind of interesting because if I worked with a person that was right in front of me and then somebody that was a little bit up to the left and a little bit up to the right. And then sometimes I would work from the track and just make eye contact with people that were higher up. Well, those people became my, my people. So that whenever I was clowning in that area, I was their clown because I had made eye contact with them and stuff. So they would always focus on me and that would bring the people around them in. And so that would pull them in as well. So uh, it was kind of interesting, the whole way clowning works and the fact that there is no fourth wall and you can really just go right out and improvise with the people that are in the audience. And we did it all the time. We did it every day, you know, so it was fun. What a fabulous life. So when you finally left, how old were you? Oh, um, I think when I left, I was 20. Let me think. Maybe 75. Maybe 20. I was about 24. 24. Wow. Wow. All that experience in a young life. Oh, my God. Yeah. And what happened was, you know, we were playing the garden in the Easter time. We always played in New York in, 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 the, in the spring. And we had no intentions of leaving the circus. We were just going to change circuses. So we were uh, we had worked with the lion tamer who had a connection with Circus Bouglion in France. And he said, I can get you a job at Circus Bouglion if you want to go to Circus Bouglion, which would mean I wouldn't be doing all these massive production numbers with the singing and dancing. I would be a, we would be an act and we would do two or three five minute acts, you know, in a show, which was that just sounded like heaven compared to the amount of work we were doing. I was doing so many falls on the ringling show. By the end of my uh, third year, I was on my day off. I was sick. I had fever and my hands would shake and I had pinched nerves and all kinds of things. So we were going to we figured, well, this would be a vacation. We'll go to Paris and we won't have to work as as much. But then we went to see the Lampoon show and the, the National Lampoon in New York. In New York had a, had a new company called The Lampoon Show. They had a new show and it was at a hotel 
and they had a midnight showing. Well, we never got to see shows in New York because if we had a Monday off, that's when all those theaters were dark, you know. Uh, and if we were working on Mondays, of course, I mean, we only got a couple of days off in the you know the nine weeks we were there anyway. So we would go at midnight, and my partner, my clown partner, and I, and a showgirl who's like real goofy, and some other clowns, we would go down to watch the Lampoon show, midnight show. And we saw it the first time and laughed so hard. We had to go back. We went back about three or four more times. And so that was Bill Murray, Brian Murray, Gilda Radner, Harold Ramis, and John Belushi. And it was only three months. It was in 75. So that was the spring. By the end of summer, they had become Saturday night. You know, they they joined right, 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 the original right. class of Saturday night. And that happened to us several times. You know, in 73, I saw Andy Kaufman, uh, J.J. Walker, and um, Freddie Prinz work at the Improv. Wow. Within months, Freddie Prinz killed on The Tonight Show and ended up with Chico and the Man. So I, we were watching these people explode. And we knew that, like, for instance, John was just unbelievably physical, very funny. Gilda, unbelievable physical comedian. Bill Murray was just hilarious. His timing was just fantastic. So we just went, I think I'd like to do this. So we would hang after the show and have beers with them until about three in the morning. And then we'd have to go back and go to bed because we had a show the next day uh, in the you know, early afternoon. So <clears throat> we'd catch four or five hours sleep and then do a show. Well, we had two shows the next day. So anyway, um, they turned us on, my friend and I, onto the Second City, and they gave us the, you know, the number of Joyce Sloan. And mm -hmm. Wow! And they said, "Are you going to be around Chicago?" And I go, "Yeah, we play Chicago in the fall. We'll call them up. They'll audition you. You know, they're really good about that. If you're really interested, they'd, they'd be wanting to see you." And I went, "Cool, okay." So as we got back then, you didn't have to go through twenty-five levels of conservancy. You could just audition. Well, yeah, there was only one, you know, you had two theaters, you had Second City and then Second City Canada. Um, they experimented while I was there with Pasadena. They had, a, they had a company in Pasadena for a little while. And I believe there was a company at one time in Detroit, which is, I think, where Gilda was from. Mm -hmm. But that was before me. But they just, they hadn't really become, you know, like the McDonald's of comedy. They hadn't spread out, you know, uh, and franchised and gotten bigger. And that's kind of an unfair comparison, but it is. I mean, they did spread out and improv in general spread out. You know, the committee was spawning, you know, groups and uh, Ace Trucking Company was huge. And they all had kind of connections to the same Spolin game, you know. Right, right. You know, background. But no, there was no, what happened was when we showed up, we thought we were going to have this, you know, audition. We showed up and there was like 300 people at the audition. And they all wanted to be working at the Second City. And a lot of them had their own groups, you know, had been working around town because there was a lot of improv groups in Chicago. And they would be working Lincoln Avenue and, you know, the pubs and, you know, working happy hour and, you know, things like that. And so uh, I had no idea. And I had never improvised. So I show up on stage and they started throwing these games at me. And I just felt blessed that when we were finished, they went, yeah, you know, come on back when you're finished with the circus. We, we think we might be able to find something for you. And I went, 
oh, great. You know, so when the circus ended, I spent about six months before I went to the second city. And then I met with my partner, my clown partner. He was there the whole six months working with uh, oh, Bernadette Burkett and Tom Tully and a bunch of guys in the uh, reification company, which was a big company there in town. So my very first day in Chicago, uh, I became a, a heckler in the audience and they worked me into a routine that night. Oh, it was fun. It was so much fun. Because what happened was I sat out there and made fun of them and people in the audience are going, shut up, you know, and they're going, give us a location. I go, my apartment, I would do my apartment. No, the couch isn't there, it's over there. And, and the guy that used to be my clown partner decided to play me and I go, I'm nothing like that. And, he go, and finally, Tom Tully goes, look, if you, if you think you're so smart, why don't you come up here and do it? And I went, no, I don't want to do that. And the audience is going, get up there, you jackass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. We, and I just went, God, we were pimping these guys so bad. Because they all fell for it. They all thought I was a drunk. And so and I, I ended up on stage, and I ended up sitting in a chair. And he goes, okay, um, Mark, why don't you walk across the room? And Mark was my old clown partner. Mark starts walking in front of me, and he stomps his foot down on my foot, or it looked like it, as he walked past me. And I grabbed my foot, and I jumped up, and I yelled, and I spun him around, and I punched him. And he goes down on his back. And then from there on, it was our old clown routine. So when he goes on his back, his legs go up in the air. I grabbed his feet, flipped him. He flipped. I hit him again. He went down. I picked him up by his hair shook him a little bit, you know, and, and he's slapping me and I'm going over the chair and taking the chair with me and rolling with it. And I mean, we were doing an old vaudeville act for crying out loud, but the audience thought it was real. And finally, wow. they took the lights out and the audience was just dumbfounded. It was just so funny. And when the lights came up, Tom told us, oh, no, this is Ron. This is Mark's old clown partner. Uh, they're, uh, they're slapstick clowns and, you know, we thought we'd fool you, and it was that was my first night in Chicago. Wow. So uh, after that, you know, I started taking workshops with Dell. So Dell Close was running workshops, and uh, uh, we worked with them for a while, and then uh, they decided to add a new touring company, and so I was put into that touring company along with my clown friend and several people and we started touring and doing second city at different universities and different places around town and if it was a benefit the second city would throw their touring company out there and you know you could have them for your benefit and it was it was grand it was really wonderful now um was michael gelman teaching then he wasn't he wasn't teaching um, then. he might have been in canada at that time because the Second City up in Canada was just starting Second City TV. And they were just about to launch Second City TV. What a great show that was. Oh, my God. Oh, I've never laughed so hard. And what's funny about that is that the, the cast would come from Canada to watch shows in, in Chicago. And they go, I, where's the laughs? Where's the laughs at? You know, because... Second, the Second City Chicago was a lot different than Second City Canada. And they said, if you didn't get a laugh every 90 seconds in Canada, they'd throw a beer bottle at you. <laughs> so so their, their style of comedy was very different than the style at the Second City in Chicago. 
But I thought that was really interesting. So you stayed with some great teachers and um, Dell was, uh, was he sober some of the time or was he already in his kind of? Well, he was in a bit of a haze um, and he would, he would be very, very edgy. You know, my partner and I, while we were at the Second City, also had to make money, you know, because we were working right, back right. more. You know, I was uh, working as a host, which was great because I understudied the main stage company, you know, before I left there. And I, I could memorize the show that way. So every day I'd watch the show and I'd watch Fred at the piano and watch these great performers. So I was in there, I was like a sponge soaking it up. But um, we had to do side jobs too. We worked White Sox games, the, the opening, they wanted a couple of Keystone Cops, we did that. We played a couple janitors for a, a big award show, the Jefferson Awards, and they had these two guys reading the rules, these comedians reading the rules. And in the background, my partner and I end up hitting each other with a broom by accident and fighting in the background. But we also did the Renaissance Fair, the second year of the King Richard's oh. Fair. So we decided we're going to be Renaissance clowns, and we went up to Gurney, which is right you know below the Wisconsin border, and that's where they were doing the show. And we took Dell. Dell had never, he really wanted to go to a Renaissance fair, and you know at one time Dell was a fire eater. He he ate fire. I did not know that. No, I didn't. Oh yeah, know that. a famous story because I think he almost caught himself on fire trying to do it one night. So there's a famous story about Dell eating fire, but uh, yeah, but he had learned to eat fire. But we went up to uh, the Renaissance Fair, and I think he was in heaven. He just seemed to have a great time with all those people. And, you know, he'd lived in San Francisco, so he understood that whole spirit, because I think the Renaissance Fair was huge in San Francisco. So this was the King's Richards Fair, uh, and we were doing our clowning. And I just remember on the way back, this is a perfect Dellism, and he I'm not the only person he would do this to, but... You know, we'd be riding in the car, and we had a little pink Triumph Herald. It was this tiny little <laughs> pink car. It was about the size of a Volkswagen, and Dell's huge, and he's in the front seat. And I just said, Dell, you know what really fascinates me? I said, is when you talk about when you went to New York, and you guys were improvising in New York. And there's some wonderful pictures of oh, Dell, and uh, you can find them online, Dell and um, Severn Darden, um, Bobby Gordon, uh, just these wonderful performers. And I guess they were working in the village or something. Mm. But I, I said, what was that like? I said, because that really fascinated me, the village in the 60s, you know. Uh, and he just goes, oh, you don't really care. You're just trying to kiss my ass. And I went, okay. And, and that's what would happen is he'd try to, you know, he would suck you in and he'd start to say something to him and then all of a sudden you get a little nick, you know, a little nick, yeah. another little nick. So I kind of get used to it. But uh, yeah, he was the, he was large and in charge at that time. And yeah, there was times when he was, he would drink a lot, you know, or he'd be out of control a little bit. And, uh, it, it, you know, that made it difficult. And I think that's why Bernie helped him, you know, get sober and my God, you know, after I left, when he came back, it sounded like there was a whole new Dell and that he just really prospered. And I think that's when he started IO. Uh, he, he started doing the IO Improv Olympics and stuff. Talk about Bernie, that's Bernie Solins. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I, I throw the names out like everybody knows them. Bernie Sollins. Bernie Sollins was a, he was a hoot, and he was really good with his actors. He, you know, he was good at taking care of us. You know, uh, especially the ones like us that you know didn't, you know, we just kind of popped up on his doorstep. So he had all these like waifs. I think at one time Bill Bill Murray might have been living in his basement when he first started out. Bernie gave him some room in the basement of his house, but Bernie was. Uh, very interesting guy. They had a, a German expressionist painting exhibit downtown in Chicago. It was all these paintings from uh, the 30s and 20s in, in Germany and Poland and fascinating, deep, dark stuff. And Bernie goes, oh, well, we should do a German expressionist show. And it was just real Mickey Rooney. You know, it's like, we, we've got this theater, so why don't we do a show? So he put together a German expressionist show that he directed. And uh, it was all verbatim. All the pieces that were done were actually, they came out of scripts that he had found of uh, German cabarets and Polish cabarets uh, in the 20s and 30s. Uh, fascinating stuff. And, you know, they were the last people to fight Nazism until they were just crushed. You know, all those performers were you know, taken away. Um, but it was really an amazing show. It was just like, it was dark. And I was the master of ceremonies and I was working with a friend of mine who's a magician who's six foot six, he used to be a clown and he had moved to Chicago. And it was just, there's another gift, you know, as Bernie said, he wanted to do the show. And do I know anybody that does magic? And I had just run into my friend Richard, who is like the six foot six tall clown magician and brought him in, Bernie fell in love with the guy and next thing you know, we're the MCs for the show. So the only thing that was new was the magic that was done in the show. And basically, as the magician, he was dressed like the proletariat and I was dressed like the working class. So he had on a top hat and, you know, celluloid collars and spats and a big collar and uh, black tights and a red spangled bikini pants, right? And then I was in white tights, black boots, black turtleneck, big, thick belt buckle, and a derby. And I was the working class guy. So he was always torturing me. He was always, his tricks always went wrong and screwed me up. But it was just an amazing experience. A lot of fun. So for people who are not really familiar with the history of Second City, it was mm -hmm. Viola's son, Paul Sills, and Bernie, right. who began Second City. Oh. Yeah. Well, we had the and compass, I, but the first thing, but the compass was there first, right? Yes. Yes, it was compass first. And then... Uh, and playwrights. They, they opened at a little Chinese laundromat right next door to a little Chinese laundry. laundry and uh, then they moved up to Piper's Alley, where the theater is now. It's 1616, I think it is, Wells. But, uh, yeah, in those early days, it was very tiny, and the audience was right on top of everybody. And, you know, Paul was trying to, to do theater for the people, and he, he envisioned people from the audience improvising too. And, but anyway, it turned out to be a really good cabaret, you know, and that's how Bernie took it and ran with it and took it up to, the, uh, to North Wells. And Paul stayed with him for a while, but uh, I believe that he had other fish to fry, and he, he, you know, he wanted to move on and try his people's theater other places and things. So 
that's the one of the wonderful things about working with Aretha is that you get to hear all these firsthand stories of you know where Paul came from and where he went to and how story theater started and evolved and you know it, it's just amazing times and he you know you just it's, it's really hard to fathom you know anything like that because today everything is like you said it becomes now it's become you've got 20 it's like uh what is it becoming a uh oh what are the Shriners? They have 33 levels of levels, levels of classes. Yeah, and yeah, all yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you get, you know, you get bumped up, bumped up. And but we were just like, okay, uh, Bernie made the decisions that we we're going to put this company together. Bernie got together with Dell, decided, okay, we're going to put these guys together and have them be the new touring company because we found another theater to put the other touring company in and land a show there, which was in Dundee, Elgin, and Dundee. So they did a show out there called Prime. It was a dinner theater, so it was called Prime Ribbing, Very Rare. And they oh, <laughs> fabulous cast. Oh, it was a really wonderful cast. Now, did you do any work with Paul and some of the other stuff? Did you ever do playback theater or any other work with him? No, no. As a matter of fact, when I, when I left the Second City, I was pretty burnt out. I'd spent seven years away from home, and I was coming back to California. So I did not do any improv until I ran into Aretha in uh, 09. And wait, wait, wait. So you stopped, what, when did you stop improv? When I left the second city. And when was that? Um, 70, 78, 1978. So and then what I did is I used improvisation as an actor to get jobs. I mean, I was always having to improvise. That was one of the things is, you know, do you know improv? Okay, good. Because they would just throw stuff at us and we would audition for commercials and movies and TV and things like that by improvising a lot of times. So Hollywood was, you know, they were, they were way into it. Uh, they understood the power of improvisation and, and how, you know, they wanted to see what kind of characters you could bring out of it and, you know, what you could do. So I, it wasn't surprising when I would show up for a commercial audition. It was Alan Arkin was the director, you know, or David Steinberg was the director. Those yeah. guys, were, or Betty Thomas now is a huge director. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, you know, they understood. They wised up and they understood that this is a, this is not method acting, but you can get that same feeling. I mean, you can you can totally believe. A, an improvisational actor when they're working because they're real, you know, they're real people. Um, so you're I'm not, spending I'm not saying anything negative about the other. It's just that they're almost at opposite ends, but there's so much in the middle that they share. So uh, Hollywood understood improv, and you know. It's so like you're spending a, you're spending that time as a working actor. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I did. I spent all through the '80s as a working actor and writer. I wrote for some for TV as well. I took some, I took a writing class for the hell of it. And it was just another thing, you know, a friend of mine comes in and goes, hey, there's these two guys, you know, from New York, they used to write for Sid Caesar. Do you want to take a class with them? And I went, okay, I love Sid Caesar. So I go in and it's uh, Sheldon Keller and Howard Albrecht and they taught a class on sitcom writing. So I took a class with them and ended up writing a couple of shows for TV. And I ended up writing a Star Trek, you know, I wrote a, an episode of Star Trek Wow, that was really strange because the that is a very good example of, of of improvisation. When I pitched 
to that to those guys and these guys are the ones that are i mean some of the biggest producers and you know showrunners and in la now when i pitched to them you know we walked in with six story ideas which is what you do you have five or six <clears throat> and i had a writing partner that i worked with that was an old friend of my wife's that it was a stage manager who is a frustrated writer. So we would sit down and come up with ideas all the time. So that's, we started writing as a partnership and I had gone to this class, so I understood sitcom. And uh, we were pitching these stories and they were all tanking, you know, they just bombed one after another. And they just, nah, we don't want to, oh, we already did that. Nah, that's not gonna work. So then we were out of stories and we figured, well, at least we got a chance to pitch, you know, stories to Star Trek. And we're walking out the door and I go, wait a minute, I, he, he goes, oh, do you have some hip pocket ideas? Hip pocket ideas, you always hold one or two stories that you didn't flesh out, but you liked. And my partner hated them. The, the, the one that I pitched, he hated the idea. And we had just had a huge earthquake in Los Angeles. Mm. And it was called the Whittier quake. And my daughter, I think, was about a year and a half old. And, you know, it was back in 86. So I think this was 88 when we were pitching, you know, so it was a little while after that. And I said, well, what if they had an earthquake in space? Then he goes, well, that's impossible. You can't have an earthquake in space. I go, well, you can write it. I said, you can figure out a way to have an earthquake in space. I said, what if they run into heavy space? And somebody went, well, there are strings in space. You know, there's heavy string. And, you know, now I've got all these geeks talking to each other about uh, heavy strings in space. And he goes, well, why don't you tell us what your idea is? And I said, okay, they have a space quake. I said, I just call it a space quake. And it shakes the ship up worse than it's ever been shaken up before. But the problem is that everybody's in the wrong place. And he says, what do you mean? I said, well, the captain is with a bunch of kids doing, uh, I said, for instance, let's have the captain with a bunch of kids doing, uh, you know, teaching the kids what it's like to be a commander. You know, it's that day where he's got to spend the day with kids. And they go, oh, that's a great idea. He hates kids. On the show, he doesn't like kids. Right, right. And, and I went, wow, that was lucky. So then I threw out another idea about two of them being stuck in a, in a hatch and only one could get out and the other one had to stay. And that was based on a play that I did when I was in high school called Submerged, about three guys in a submarine and one of them had to stay to push the button to send the other two out the torpedo tube. Mm. It's a very heavy psychological play from, of course, Sweden. And uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, they went, well, it's a great idea. And then they started giving me ideas. And what happened was it turned from me pitching story ideas to them, to them getting excited and pitching ideas to me. He says, well, could we do this? And I went, sure. And I'm looking over my partner's writing everything down, he's getting it all down. And literally they wrote the, the pitch, you know, I pitched them a couple ideas and then they came back and gave us all this information and said, okay, we're gonna give you a story to write, go back and write it. We need 13 pages, double space, story, give it back to us and we'll write the script. You get the story credit. We went, okay. <laughs> so that's how I ended up writing a story for Star Trek. Oh, well, when it was finished, they did everything that we liked, plus added some other elements to it with data and all those guys. Uh, I had data is in Jeffrey tubes with Riker and this electricity flying around and 
something comes down and data puts his hand up and saves it and then he finds out that he's welded his hand and so he goes oh there's no problem and he goes click and he leaves his hand there and he walks away with no hand well they had him do it with his head they took his head off and then they got right <laughs> it was data that was the robot right uh, see i'm not even a big star trek fan yeah data it was data so anyway uh you know, they added stuff to it and it was just wonderful, you know, collaborating. So then finally I watched the stupid thing and I realized that what we had created was the Poseidon adventure. And we had, without even knowing it, you know, we had re redone a version of the Poseidon adventure in space. It was, just, and I hated the Poseidon adventure, one of my least favorite movies. Uh, <laughs> anyway, you just never know where it's gonna go. Wait a minute, was Shatner in there? No, this was uh, a later generation. So okay. this was Patrick uh, Stewart. Patrick Stewart, yes, and all the those zany bunch. So yeah, yeah it's called. It's I still get a you know a dollar fifty residual check all the time. It's a, Wonderful. That's going to keep you in. Uh... Oh yeah, it keeps me in bubble gum. Yeah. But you know, it, it's a lot of fun, and I you know, so they they show it somewhere. I think there's a Star Trek or a, a station that shows all those old Star Treks all the time. Yeah, that's but, great. Uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun. And that was tr just right out of the blue, you know. You know, before before we um, eventually come to a stop, I think I'm going to have to make this a two-part interview probably because there's so much to talk about. Oh, I'm sorry. No, don't, no, there's no I'm sorry, an improv or life. That's, are you kidding me? It's great. This is a, a, so interesting. We could just talk forever probably. Um, Going back know. to, um, <laughs> before we started the uh, podcast, I mentioned um, your experience with Dave Shepard, because not everybody knows David Shepard. We've got our lovely friend, Michael Golding, who keeps reminding people and instructing people on David Shepard, but he's such an important person that doesn't get much mention. Yeah, well, I think David was, David was definitely there at the beginning with the committee, or not the committee, what am I doing? Uh, with the Compass and with the Second City, I think he was around then. And so was um, Sheldon Patinkin. Yes. Was another name. And that's really unfortunate. One of the reasons I left, I didn't see any, I didn't see any future at the Second City with Dell. I just, I just didn't think I was ever going to go anywhere. And I was doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over. And I went, oh, you know, I've just kind of had my fill. Maybe it's time to go. I had no idea that Dell was going to be out soon in in treatment and that Sheldon was going to come in. And I'd heard that some guy named Sheldon was hanging around. I didn't know that he had seen me and seen other people and, you know, was, was making consideration. So all that kind of stuff happened without me knowing it. And then I met Sheldon years later and he goes, oh, I remember you. Why'd you leave? And I go, oh, I don't know. I just, it was my time. It was my time, <laughs> you know, and, and I wouldn't change it, but uh, it was just, it was amazing because these people would always kind of float in and out. David, I didn't know David from Adam until one of our, one of the people that we play with in workshops, Melinda, said, we're doing, you know, we're doing improv on, on the telephone every week on Sunday at one o'clock. And I go, who's we? And he goes, David Shepard and, uh, oh, um, Howard Jerome. David's in New York, Howard's up in Canada. Right, right. Went, oh, okay. So I would go out in the garage and put my earphones on and we would play these wonderful games that had been put together for radio that I don't know that it ever came to fruition, but we were playing these games and I don't know how old David was. 
but my God, he was sharp as a tack. And we would get into these scenes and he was just hilarious. And Howard is like your, uh, the moderator. He's like, he, he just keeps everything moving. He really does. And Howard was a clown. Was he really? You know, I've, I've, I did a podcast with Howard. He was just delightful. I just he, loved And him. that voice. That yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, so you got to meet Howard? Oh, I love Howard. I did, I did, of course, through Michael again, Michael Golding. Um, and uh, he was wonderful. I just enjoyed him so much. So um, let's get to more recent times because we met through Aretha. And Absolutely. so how did you get into Aretha's class? What happened that brought you there? You said it was about nine years ago? <laughs> well, um, what I didn't say was I met my wife at the Second City. She oh. was the stage manager for the main stage. Okay. So she was the main stage stage manager. And so whenever they had reunions or anything, we would always fly back to be part of the reunion. So the reunions are always uh, in December because that's when it first started. So we had the 25 year reunion and then 25 years later, we had the 50 year reunion. So we had gone to the 50 year reunion, which was in 09 and uh, we had attended all these things and it was very massive and it was unlike any second city I remembered, it was very elaborate and they had a, a sky room and then Jeff Machowski's ETC had grown to become its own entity and you know and he's another of my favorite people Jeff. James, James and Jane oh yeah, my Jeff god just, Jeff and I had some adventures at the second city that were unbelievable we had to rebuild the entire theater that we had to we had to fireproof the theater or they were going to close it so Jeff and I and my clown partner you know at the second city my wife and a wonderful man named Joel Bloom, who was a stage manager there. We all took every piece of wood apart. Oh, and Marty Kaz, Fred's son. We took all the wood apart and had to put asbestos paint on it and put it all back together again. We had to add more drywall to meet, you know, fire code. And we were struggling to keep the theater open because they were threatening to close it in three weeks if we didn't bring it up to code. So that all happened. That was a whole other Magilla there. But, uh, Fabulous people, fabulous people. And those were the guys that, you know, when the chips are down, you want Jeff there and all that. So anyway, here we are, it's the 50th anniversary. We're at this thing and we get back on the plane to fly back. And this lovely lady is sitting next to us and it was Aretha. And she ended up on the plane with us. So going back, she talked a little bit about, you know, uh, what she was doing in LA and she said that she, you know, she was thinking about starting up workshops again and she did. And I didn't really participate at first because I didn't know about them, but she and my wife stayed, you know, on, I'm not a big computer guy, but my wife and her stayed friends and on uh, the internet. So she would send out blasts about workshops. And finally one day she goes, Ron, you should think about taking a workshop with Aretha. And I go, oh, is she doing workshops? She goes, yeah, I'd love to. So I took a workshop and then it's, I haven't stopped since. I, every time I can take a workshop with Aretha, we, I do a workshop. She's wonderful teacher. Oh my wonderful God. teacher. And I've been studying like since the pandemic, I guess. And oh, okay. um, every class I can take, I take. 
I just find her delightful and I'm learning so much. I, I was really, you know, being starting improv like 10 years ago, I was influenced by people who had trained with comedy sports and all these other things, you know, and IO. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was always something about Spolin and her book that really intrigued me. And now being able to study with Aretha and really learning the games and really playing the games has just brought it even more that Spolin is improv. I mean, it's and just it, and it really helps you read the games as well. Yes. You know, after you played them a little bit, then you you know the terminology, having used it over and over, it sinks in. Follow the follower has a whole different meaning than when I first heard it. You know, it's like, you know, now it's something that's a real thing. You know, not just a word. And it's a real, you know, energy that's between you and another actor or everybody in the audience. I mean, it's all out there. And it sounds, you know, uh, sounds strange, but really, you know, living it and, and then reading it in the book is completely different now. So, And oh, the, cool. fact that, the fact that she brings Neva in and, um, you know, every we start our classes usually with a game by Neva. And sure. I, I know you know that I'm a social worker, so I feel this seven degrees from... Hull House, Jane Addams, Neva, and Viola. I feel this incredible connection. Yeah, my daughter is an occupational therapist. Oh. She deals in mental health. And it's the same thing. You know, we go, she knew all about Hull House and, and how it started. And uh, I don't know if you've ever, did you ever read any of the Jane Addams bios, biographies? There's one by a woman named, her last name is Knight. Fascinating book. I mean, when you read about Jane Addams and, just what a power she was really and she, yes she was really powerful you know she got a she got a pulitzer prize a nobel was, or a nobel prize she peace nobel. prize yes yeah yep. the peace prize she got you know she was one of the you know she was one of the, i think the original members of the naacp you know and she was fighting for playgrounds in the in the city when they were rebuilding it as opposed to giant parks you know uh and she was all about children and, and helping the families. And it's a, it's a, it's a really good read. It's a good book. It's yeah. A good she book. was a, she was a game changer, certainly. And she's the mother of, so, she's the mother of social work. And Neve is the mother of games and Viola, of course, is the mother of improv. But I like to throw David Shepard in there as the father of improv, because I think he's an important name to remember. Oh, David? Yes. Yeah. yes. And yeah. just, he was, he was just so much fun. I'm so glad I got to meet him on the phone and got to meet, uh, you know, um, uh, Golding. Um, what's Michael? It? Michael. <laughs> I don't want to say more. I, I get these blanks every once in a while. Okay. See, I got to speak to David too, but it was, he was pretty far gone. Okay. Um, and it got a little risque, so I never uh, uh, published it or talked together. But I did have a talk with him, and we played games, and it was a lot of fun. And oh. um, yeah, I felt yeah, very honored by that. He's a thrill. But yeah, um, so that's how I ended up meeting Aretha. You know, we literally we flew on an airplane together, and and wow. these, are, these are these little gifts that you know you get. And I could have ignored it, but I didn't. You know, it's just like, oh no, I remember feeling such a good feeling, such a warm feeling from her. I went, well, yeah, you know, because I was kind of gun shy. I didn't want to go back into competition improv again. Oh, that was the one thing at the second seat. There was a lot of competition. You know, everybody was vying for any opening and any spot. And there was a lot, you know, 
it, it just got it was hard. It was hard to deal with. I just I just wanted to go play, you know, and and go work and get my laughs and go home. <laughs> you know? Absolutely, but, absolutely. Yeah, and, and so I was, a little, and I think it was mostly burnout from being gone for seven years. I'd spent three years with the circus, and then a couple more years at the Second City, and it was just like, yeah, I'm about, I'm about toast at this point. It wasn't seven years. I'm going to say it was more like five, five or six years that I was gone, and I just went well, to, go back to California eventually. I am so glad you're back, Ron, because I got to meet you, and I've been playing with you for a long time now. Usually we're in at least one class together. Wow. Um, and I have just enjoyed this so much. Oh, and I, 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 you're just a wealth of information, the history of improv, that uh, I, I could talk about this all the time. I mean, well, really. me, too. me too. I enjoyed this. This was wonderful. And sometime we'll, sometime we'll talk about the Asner Center and some of the other stuff. Oh, we didn't get to the Asner Center. Oh. Yeah, Oh, well, let's make a, let's talk about it a little bit. Okay. Um, just before uh, COVID hit, um, I was working with uh, Aretha and we were doing, uh, we were doing school shows and we were doing everybody can improvise shows where we would pull school children and teachers into uh, scenes with us and let them improvise and we would show them how scenes were done so we did some games where we just played the games and then other games we pulled the kids in and they got to improvise too and then we would take their teacher and we would make the kids pick a teacher and you know it was really lovely it was a nice little nice little show and we we're going around to different schools in the los angeles unified school district around that same time aretha started working with the uh ed asner family center uh which has a lot of uh, a, a disabled, I, I, what's the best word? Well, it's it? children with aut on the autism spectrum and mm -hmm. other other issues like sensory processing exactly. and ADHD. And I did interview Ed a few years ago myself. Okay. So yeah, that was a yeah, treat. And then the center's been around for a little while and yeah. she, was, she, she was teaching uh, or actually running workshops with the kids there with um, uh, Max. Max Schaefer, uh -huh. and Max was uh -huh. her assistant. And then one day he couldn't make it, so I filled in. And so I was introduced to to the center, and I went, oh, this is wonderful, because they were playing New York, they were playing tug of war. Right, right. They were playing these games, and it was just so much fun. Well, then this summer, um, Max took over, you know, for the summer, for their summer camp, and he took themes uh, that they had, like one is Cowboy Day, another one was campfire we just did one for superheroes and uh he took the games that uh, the the spoiling games and we made them thematic and we turned them around so it's a combination of spoiling games and neva boyd's games and we go in and play with these kids and they play so hard i mean really hard and the people are really happy that we come in because we get them up and moving around and they're engaged and they're sharing with each other. And it's just, it's a wonderful hour. It's just a fantastic hour. And I am spent. By the time I leave there, I need a nap. It's just, it's- Oh, amazing. and they're so grateful. They're so grateful and so appreciative. I mean, it's oh, yeah. just beautiful. 
work. I think I've told you I've worked with kids on the spectrum and things like that in the past. And boy, I'm, I would love to come out and be part of that sometime. It's oh just my God, a yes. wonderful project. So great. And, and they'll jump into a game and hijack it. You know, they, they've got their own way of playing it. And we just yes. adjust and go with that. And it's, it's great. Because it's, it's, it always it amazes Max and I by the end of the game, we go, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> you know, you mentioned New York, New York, and uh, did they ever play Kitty Wants a Corner? Uh, we haven't done that one yet. Uh, with the, He may have with Aretha, but I, I haven't. I but, love that game. Uh, oh, yeah, that's a fun game. But, you know, we do a lot of running around and, and hooting and hollering, and some people can't move around as much, so we go and tailor it to them. And it's it's been a really blessing for me. It's got me, because, you know, we're all holed up, and we're sitting in our houses and trying to stay safe. And, and you know, to be able to go into that community and, and be welcomed and to get so jazzed, you know, when I walk out of there, it just it carries me through to the next week. So I think we have one more. And then we're done for the summer. Yeah. But I don't know what we'll be doing in the future there. But it's, it's so a great, great center. If you, you know, I mean, it, it, like I said, if anybody wants to donate, you know, that would be a great place. If you want to donate money to a, a worthy cause, the Ed Asner Center is a great one. And then, of course, Aretha has the Spolin, uh, Sil Spolin Theater Works, uh, where they give, um, what do you call it? Uh, they'll give classes to teachers who want to learn how to do uh, beautiful spoling games and then they take that into their classroom so if you're a teacher they have scholarships you know that they'll try and get you a class where you can take an introduction to uh, spoling and it's free because we all know how tough it is for teachers you know they spend Absolutely. a lot classroom stuff I mean, it's, it's tough. even my daughter the OT she was always spending her own money you know on stuff for her sessions her group sessions and things so yeah i love you know i love all things spolin and uh, i love the asner center they're doing incredible work so right yeah, I actually we're, i got my we are doing we were actually recording on august 5th of 2021 hopefully this is going to go out soon because right now there is a fundraiser and different things you can enter at the ed asner center and i'll put all this stuff in the text oh yeah yeah because yeah, yeah. I, I do write some things up and publish hey, cool. the podcast the, that. the easy thing is you can just uh, you you can follow the ed asner center and then they'll always contact you and give you this stuff same yeah. with uh sil spold and theater works so uh, those are two of my biggies that i you know i really support as much as i can well, they're good biggies. And I am just so glad I asked you on the show because... I'm glad you did too. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so we'll probably have to do this again, Ron. But um, okay. thank you so much for being here today. And um, I, just, I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you and what a blessing it is to know you. Oh, thank you. And same here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Okay, we'll see you in class. Yep, we'll do. Okay. Bye bye.